Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Being a part of this service is one of the highlights of my week. Thank you for being here. We also want to welcome those again who are joining us online around the city or around the country or otherwise. Uh, It's always great having you tune in. If you would take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to begin in a moment. And we're continuing our series, our new series called Authentic, The Marks of a Disciple. And we're trying to answer the question, what is a disciple according to the Bible? What is a Jesus follower according to God's Word? Our mission at Bible Center is to glorify God by producing more maturing followers of Jesus. And sometimes in church, it's easy to use church words and forget exactly uh, what it is that they mean. What is our target? What is our goal when we say that we want to be disciples of Jesus? What does God call us to? And then what do we want to produce? What do we want to make as we seek to help others follow Jesus as well? And so this series answers that question. It's a three-part series. What we've done is we've taken all the words of Jesus in the New Testament when he uses the word disciple, and we've boiled them down to really three summary, three different topics, and that is a disciple is someone who loves God, it's someone who loves each other, and it's someone who loves their neighbors. And so we love the Lord, we love other Christians, and then we love people in the world. And I said last week, if you want to take notes or if you're a a mental note taker, you want to remember these two words. It's the word characteristically and the word progressively, characteristically and progressively. And by that, I mean that first and foremost, a disciple is someone who characteristically is marked by these three things. It doesn't mean that we do it perfectly, but someone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they don't love God, they don't love other Christians, and they don't love their neighbor, really doesn't follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus was very, very clear about that. He goes, if you don't love God, if you don't love your neighbor, you are not my disciple. And so they're characteristics of us who follow Jesus. But they're also a word that we want to look at progressively. There is not one of us who do these things perfectly. So in other words, we want to love God more next year than we do this year. We want to love our neighbors more next year than we do this year. So these are characteristic of a believer, but they're also progressive. We're growing in them. It is what we are becoming as we're changed into the image of Christ. John 13 is one of those chapters where you're going to see the word disciple used over and over again. And I'll just put this on the screen, John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 gives us another summary of that same point. And Paul is telling the church at Galatia, he says, love everybody, especially those of the household of faith. And so all he's saying there is, yes, we love the world. Yes, we love the city, but it begins here at home. He invites us to love the people in our church, the Christians with whom we do life. And so I thought it would be helpful to begin with a few questions. I'm going to ask you a few questions and you don't have to answer out loud. But just think about these and see if they do to your heart what they did to my heart this week. Here's the first one. Do you love 
other Christians. Or instead of saying, do you love other Christians, I'll say it this way, are you known for loving other Christians? We always think we love other people, right? Like, oh yeah, of course, I love other people. But do the people in our lives really see it and believe it that we strive to love other Christians? Here's another question. Do you stir up dissension and conflict among other Christians? Or are you known for stirring up dissension and conflict among other Christians? When people go to the dictionary and they look up conflict, do they see your picture? Right? When your friends think about you and inviting you to that party or you to that lunch, do they just know you're going to be the person with a chip on your shoulder with something to complain about? Again, none of us are perfect, but let's really think through this. Are we known for loving other believers? Two more questions. Is there another Christian with whom you need to try to reconcile, but you keep putting it off? Is there another Christian with whom you need to try to work things out, but you keep putting it off? And lastly, are you an active contributor to God's family with yourself, with your grace, with your kindness, or are you more of a consumer in God's family? Are you someone who's known for giving and blessing with others with your kind words, your presence, yourself, or are you someone who's only known for taking? These questions really wreck my heart this week, and I'm hoping that as we dive into this message, you'll open up your heart just as I've had to do uh, to mine. This topic is hard. I can probably think of 10 other sermons you would rather listen to. I probably think of 100 other sermons that I would rather preach. Because when we start talking about relationships with one another, sometimes we're getting right down where the rubber meets the road. But I believe this is important for several reasons in our church. One, I think it's important because somebody's salvation is probably at stake. Someone's salvation is probably at stake. As you read about revivals in churches, when you read about churches like ours that are on the move and going forward, one thing that always marks those churches at the beginning of a gospel movement is that people who for years were religious actually become born again. God opens their heart and they recognize that they've never loved God before. They've never loved others before. And all this time, the spinning of the wheels has just been because they hadn't had spiritual life. And so I'm convinced, even as I'm preaching and I'm praying that God will open your heart to faith and that somebody's salvation will be realized today. The second reason this is important is because I'm convinced your satisfaction, my satisfaction is at stake. Have you ever noticed whenever you're getting ready to go help somebody or serve someone that maybe you're dreading it? There are times that happens even to pastors, if I could admit that. You're like, man, I got one more visit. I got it. And then you do it. And what usually happens when you're done? You usually leave more blessed than when you started, right? Because that's the way God's made us. God hasn't made us to be cesspools where everybody just gives to us. God has made us to be channels of his grace. And when we're operating like God made us, we're satisfied. So as your pastor, I want your joy. We're not having church today for me, for our staff. We're having church today for the Lord, but we're having church today for you, for all of us, that we might find joy in Christ. I want you to leave with the joy of the Lord, no matter what's going on in your life. And I believe you'll find it 
when you're committed to loving other people like God has loved you. And then the last reason this is important, this is just kind of behind the curtains, the way pastors think. A message like this is important because our strategy depends on it. So salvation, our satisfaction, and our strategy. When we think about strategy, what we want to do as a church is we want to align ourselves around these three marks of a disciple. We want worship to align with loving God. We want belonging to align with loving others. And then next week you'll see that we want serving to align with loving our neighbors. So our strategy depends on it. We want to dive in together, and I hope this message is a help to you as it is to me. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to give you today's big idea right at the beginning of the message. So if you're a note taker in the app or the outline, feel free to write this down. God calls people in the church to care for people in the church. God calls people in the church to care for people in the church. These words were inspired by the Apostle Paul, one of the first missionaries for Jesus after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. And the Apostle Paul was excited about the church at Corinth. It was a city in southern Greece, and this particular church was in a pagan area, a cultic area. They came to know Christ. There were hundreds that seemed to, to follow Christ, but this church had its struggles. And in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we find that one of the struggles was just simply division. The Bible says they were quarreling with one another. The word quarreling in the original language means to battle or to be at war. So essentially, this church, this congregation, was at war with one another. Also in chapter 1 and into chapter, chapter 2, we find what they were quarreling about. They were arguing over their favorite spiritual leaders. Now, if you're new to church, these names might not mean anything to you, but these are names in the New Testament, names like some said, I'm of Paul. Others said, I'm of Apollos. Others says, well, I'm of Peter. And then the really spiritual ones were like, well, yeah, I'm of Jesus. And they weren't saying that because they really were of Jesus. They were just trying to use the name of Jesus to sound spiritual. And so it would be kind of like us as a church. We think back, if you're familiar with any of our history, somebody's saying, and thankfully we don't have this here, but someone might say, well, I'm of, of Pastor Bob Spradling, who came in the 70s. Well, I'm of Pastor Sean, who came in the 90s. Well, I'm of Pastor Eric, who came in the 2000s. Or I'm of Pastor Matt. You can kind of see how how hard that would be and how really meaningless that would be because really we're all truly of Christ. And so Paul writes and he says, stop fighting about who your favorite is and stop arguing uh, with one another about your preferences. Preferences have always been a big problem in the church. They've been a big opportunity for grace. Now their preferences and problems were different than ours. I'll tell you some of the things they had to argue about. 
They argued over, according to this book, whether or not it was okay to eat meat. You're like, what's the big deal about that? Well, many of us don't come from Jewish backgrounds, so we don't wrestle with that. What kinds of meat can we eat? Even those that believed it was okay to eat meat were arguing over which supermarket they could buy their meat from. Some said that, well, if the supermarket bought their meat from the idol worshipers, that means the meat had been sacrificed to idols, therefore it's a sin to buy from that supermarket. And other Christians were like, no, 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 an idol is just an idol. There's nothing to an idol. It's just a piece of stone. It doesn't matter. Steak is steak. And there were these divisions. They were arguing over what they could drink and what they couldn't drink. They were arguing over their preferences in their worship services. You get into like chapter 8, 9, and 10, chapter 11, they're arguing over about what's right for a worship service, what's not right for a worship service. Any of that sound familiar? right? 2,000 years later. So what is Paul going to write to a church that's struggling with these things? What the apostle Paul says is not a list, but he gives them the call for love. Paul says, I'm not going to list for you what you and you and you and you and you can't do. I'm not a legalist, he says, but I want you to be a lover of Jesus and a lover of people with whom you may disagree. So Paul calls them to love. In verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, even if you have the most beautiful voice, but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. Even if you know all sorts of Bible facts, if you don't have love for others, it's meaningless. Even if you do all sorts of amazing good works, but don't have love for others, it's meaningless. Verse 3, God calls people in the church to care for people in the church. Then he gives us this description of care. He gives us this description of active love. It's, it's a love that sweats. It's a love with work boots on. It's not just a feeling kind of love, but it, it's a love that acts. And he says in verse four, let's look at these verses together. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. There were several things that just jumped out to me studying this text this week, and I'll share them with you quickly. The first consideration in your notes is this. Relying solely on our personalities, temperaments, and human strength will often fall short of showing this kind of love to one another. If we're just acting on ourselves, our personalities, our temperaments, our strength, will often fall short of showing this kind of love to one another. Let's do a little experiment. I'm going to put this verse up on the screen, but I'm going to take out the word love. It's just going to be blanks. So try putting your name, not the person sitting beside you, your name in the blank. And let's see how far you get before you have to eat some crow, okay? I'm going to do it. Here we go. Ready? Matt is patient. I got to stop right there, right? Like, I'm already pegged. I, I read an author this week that said, put your name in there and see how far you could go. And it was just super painful. 
I was talking with our three kids this week and, and about how that whenever they were little, of course, they're all grown up now, but whenever they were little, they used to like Nemo, Finding Nemo, and you had Dora the Explorer, who, or not Dora the Explorer, Dora the Fish, who, I get this wrong, who told Nemo, you can tell, you Disney fans are going to get me after the service. She told Nemo, she said, you're Mr. Grumpy Gills. And when my girls were little, whenever daddy was impatient, my girls would say, dad, are you being Mr. Grumpy Gills? Now, of course, I loved that. I loved getting called out, you know, for being impatient by my three-year-old and my six-year-old. But the truth is, people who are in our homes, they know us well. They know who we really are. So how'd you do this week? Were you patient? Were you kind? Did you envy anybody? Did you boast? Were you proud? Did you dishonor others? Were you self-seeking? Were you easily angered? Did you keep any record of wrongs? Did you delight in evil this week but not rejoice in the truth? Did you fail to protect and trust and hope and persevere this past week? Think about what being patient means. Being patient means to be slow, to become resentful. The same word was used in the original language for a pot you had set on the stove that was slow to boil. Literally, you keep the burner on low. That's what it means to be patient. Now, patience isn't always, doesn't mean naivete. I'm not advocating for someone in the room today. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been physically hurt or otherwise. I am not saying that if you love Jesus, you're going to overlook that abuse. There are a number of other verses in the Bible that call us to pursue justice and righteousness. I thank God for the system in which we live. And so if you're under any kind of abuse, if you're under any kind of mistreatment, seek some help. Seek some help. Let us as a church help you. Let the law help you, making sure that you respect yourself as the son or daughter of God. So I'm not talking about anything like that. But the rest of the message, I am just talking about everyday life. Are you edgy and impatient even after what God has done for you? This past week, were you patient on the road? Were you patient in the checkout line? Were you patient with your coworkers, with your spouse, with your kids? Have you been unkind to anybody this week? Have you envied anybody else this week? Matthew 27, 18, I didn't know this until this week. Matthew 27, 18 says that one of the big sins of the Pharisees was envy was envy. They envied Jesus's influence. They envied Jesus's popularity. They envied his following. And in Matthew 27, 18, it tells us that that was the reason they gave Jesus up to be crucified. Now, these weren't bad, quote unquote, bad people. These were like the pastors and teachers of Israel. These were the little league coaches. These were the carpool drivers, but they were filled with envy. What about you? Are you envious of somebody else in this church? Are you envious of the house they live in, the job they have, the husband they have, the wife they have, the success of their children, the vacations that they get to take, their preparation for retirement versus your preparation for retirement, your health? Every Sunday when you see that person, are you envious? God says, no, don't be envious. He invites us away from all that. Have you been proud or boastful this week? Have you been rude to others this week? We in America say we have the right 
to speak our minds, right? It's part of democracy. We have the right to speak our minds. Well, I'm thankful we live in a democratic republic. But in that, do we as Christians really have the right to belittle others, to malign others with our words? Do we have the right to ignore our spouses when we know they need our attention? Do we have the right to bark at the clerk, to bark at the kids just because they do or say something we don't like? Have you been easily angered this past week? He says love is slow to anger. In a number of other translations, it's translated this way. Love is not touchy. Love is not irritable, quick-tempered. It's not quick to take offense. It's not easily angered. It does not fly off the handle. And then he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. I remember when the iPhone first came out. I think it was like 2007, 2008, I got my first iPhone. They hadn't been out very long. And I remember just the, the, how cool it was to have a memo on my phone. Now, don't think less of me, because it's been so long ago, right? 13 years ago. But I remember that I had a memo on my phone of the people in my life and areas where the people in my life needed to grow. In other words, when I would see a failure in, of them in my home or maybe at work or someone that I did life with, I would just kind of write that down, waiting for the right opportunity to, to shower them with my knowledge to help them grow. And ultimately, I meant to grow as well as I've grown. But eventually, you know what that stuff does? You start to keep that record and you just bury it. And you just bury it. And before long, it comes out as some type of outburst or some type of email that you never should have sent. And it never works out the way love intended for it to work out because God says love keeps no record of wrongs. Did you gossip this week? Did you hurt someone's reputation or protect someone's reputation? I love what Lee Walker said a few weeks ago. And Lee said, as we interviewed him for 50 years in ministry, remember how he said, lower your expectations? That was so helpful for me as a pastor, and I hope it was helpful to you. I heard a dad this week tell me that it's helped him with his kids. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we will put someone on a pedestal like our spouse, our children, another church member, and whenever they do something that we don't like, and maybe it's not right, or maybe they do hurt our feelings in some way, it's easy for us to be shattered and say, well, I'm out, I'm done, I quit. And what God is calling us to do here is no, to lean in, to suffer long. He didn't call us to an organization. He called us to a family. Family is hard. We've all got one. We have cousins and uncles and aunts and reunions. Here in West Virginia, if you go back far enough, we're probably all part of the same reunion. But God says he calls us to love. We often fall short of showing this kind of love to one another. So what are we going to do about it? Well, that brings us to the second consideration. This is where the good news is. Thankfully, Jesus perfectly fulfilled this kind of love. He paid the sin debt for all the times we haven't loved God and others like we should. Jesus paid the sin debt for all the times we haven't loved God and others like we should. Earlier, I asked you to put your name in this verse. 
Matt or Susie or Bob is patient, etc. Now let's do something else. Let's put Jesus' name in this passage and see if it applies. Think of what you know of the Bible. You think this is true. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. He's not proud. He doesn't dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. I'll ask this question. How many of you would say that Jesus has at least in your life given you a second chance? He's given you at least one second chance with some decision that you've made. Anybody at all second chances? Yeah. I think if I were to ask today, how many of us has Jesus given 50 chances or 5,000 chances? Most of us would have to raise our hand. One of the, the aspects of God, even in the Old Testament, is it says the Lord is slow to anger. His loving kindness and his patience endure forever. Jesus is patient. He's the one who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The disciples knew that Jesus was, yes, the most powerful man who ever walked the face of the earth. Yes, the most holy man to ever walked the face of the earth. But he was also the kindest man to ever walk the face of the earth. Think about Jesus' first miracle. His first miracle was when a, a wedding couple had to run out of wine, John chapter 3. This was like a social train wreck. What's he do? His very first miracle is to turn the water into wine. He saves this couple from a social miscue. Jesus was known for going to the homes of the riffraff of society. You know, I love how Jesus healed the lepers. Often Jesus would heal someone with a word and he would speak and they would be healed. But in almost every instance, when Jesus healed the lepers, he touched them. Why do you think Jesus touched them? The Bible doesn't tell us, so I'm just going to speculate. I guess, I would guess, these are men and women who had not been touched, and for some of them in years and years and years, because they had leprosy. And Jesus touches the untouchable because he knew what they needed and craved the most. Yes, Jesus is holy, but friend, let's not forget he's also kind. He's not self-seeking. He gave up everything to die on a cross, to be buried, to rise again the third day. Did Jesus ever get angry in the New Testament? Yes, he did. We know of at least two instances where Jesus got angry, but I've heard on more than one occasion a Christian try to justify being a hothead by saying, well, you know, even Jesus got angry. I'm like, yeah, you know, how many times in the New Testament did Jesus get angry? Well, he probably got angry a lot. Well, actually, he got angry twice, as far as we know, or we can tell, right? So he got angry twice. Both times, it was because God's name was being blasphemed, not because his comforts were being infringed upon, not because his kids wouldn't change the channel or hand him the remote, not because somebody didn't bring him food when the time he wanted food, not because something didn't happen at work as fast as he wanted it to happen at work. You see, God never invited us to justify our sin with Jesus. It's not a sin to be angry, but God says it is a sin to be quick to anger. And unfortunately, most of us have been there more than we'd like to admit. We can read this passage and remember that Jesus 
is talking about a love that we can't produce, but it's also a love that we can't resist. Jesus fulfilled this love in a way that you and I never could. Which brings us to our third and last consideration. Since Jesus arose, ascended into heaven, and permanently gave his spirit to believers, we all have the spiritual power to show this kind of love to one another. We all have the spiritual power to show this kind of love to one another. Jesus not only forgave our sin at the cross, but he literally empowered us to live lives full of the evidence of the Spirit. What's the evidence of the Spirit? If you're taking notes, it's Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's gentleness, it's goodness, it's faith, it's meekness, it's discipline, all because we have the Spirit. Does it mean we'll always appropriate His strength? No, but we have it. At every point in time, we are capable of loving others, even when you and I think that we can't. As you look in the New Testament, we see that marriage-saving love is not natural to us. Friendship-preserving devotion is not found in our hearts. We need help from an outside source. We need a transfusion, so to speak, which is why we needed the gospel and why we need Jesus Christ in our lives. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, one last time. And let's read it like this. I've changed some words around. This is not word for word, but it proves the point. It's modified. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Jesus is changing me to be patient, kind, to not envy, to not boast, to not be proud, to not dishonor others, to not be self-seeking, to not be easily angered, Jesus is helping me to keep no record of wrongs. He's transforming me to not delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth. To be more protecting, more trusting, more hopeful, more enduring. Jesus will not let me ultimately fail. We've heard the verse, those of us who've played sports in any kind of Christian environment, where Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Now, when I was a kid, we thought that meant that we could make that half-court shot. Brother, you can make that half-court shot with two seconds left because I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Now, sometimes that was true. More times than not, it wasn't true. But we left the locker room thinking it was true, right? Left the bench, we were ready. But I don't think that's what Paul had in mind, right? He definitely didn't have that in mind for the Mountaineers last night. Didn't? That's not what he had in mind. This is what he had in mind. I can do all of these things. I can show all of this love through Christ who has strengthened me. I have the power because I have the Spirit. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Here's our challenge this morning. It's simply this. Let's care for each other in the same way God cares for us. Let's care for each other in the same way that God cares for us. Are we going to fail each other at times? Yes. Are we going to say things that offend one another? Yes. Are we going to forget to follow up with one another? Sure, but may God help us to press in. And this week I asked our pastors, all of our leaders, I said, let me know of some things. Can you tell me of some people all around our church who are serving in ways that maybe the church doesn't know about? And I'm not going to read their names, but I heard a long list. I'm just going to read a portion of it. 
Listen to what's taking place already in your church. There are people here this morning cooking meals for families who are wrestling with cancer. There are grandparents who are adopting grandkids as their grandchildren while their dad is away in the service, taking them to places like Disney on Ice and Sky Zone. There are family members bringing children of other family members into their home because of some very, very difficult situations. These things are never making the billboards. They're not up on the screens, but they're happening. Even when people, sometimes even me, don't know it. There's foster parents genuinely working with biological parents to help them get their children back. That's that's an aspect of adoption we forget about. I was in the home of a couple just two weeks ago, and they were talking about the joy. They had worked over a year with this family, and they were able to, through the court system, give the children back, and they were celebrating. I was like, that is supernatural grace. That's not natural. That's supernatural. There's people in this room making extreme sacrifices to serve our families with those affected by special needs. There are people in this room making extreme sacrifices to serve children on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and to serve our students. I don't think Pastor Caleb's in here, at least I don't think. He's probably home taking a nap somewhere. But Pastor Caleb, the dude leads worship all weekend. I was here. I spoke Friday night, and that was it. He led worship Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night. He was here earlier this morning to lead worship, and he had six-grade boys in his house. That dude's insane. He's insane. That takes a whole nother level of grace, and I know that's going on all across our church. There's wives forgiving husbands, husbands forgiving wives. I heard the story this week of some of you who are checking on our widows, and every day at trash day, you're taking their trash cans out to the road. Man, when I get to heaven, there's some of you that are going to be so far ahead. That's beautiful. That's New Testament Christianity. There's people in this room and in our first service who've chosen to stay and to engage in ministry and to dive in even when the preferences aren't exactly the way you would want them to be. And I commend you for that. I thank you for that. So what can we do this week to love and care for others? Well, the Holy Spirit may lay something on your heart that I'll not mention, but here's just a few before we pray. I pray the Lord to lay it upon someone's heart to begin to cut others more slack. If that's you and you have been the person with the iPhone writing down what everybody's doing wrong around you, maybe this morning God will speak to your heart and you'll just begin to love others and care for others the way God has cared for you. Or maybe there's someone here and and you've really been uh, kind of angry, kind of upset with another group in the church and, and you really thought that group is out to hurt your group and so you've spoken negatively about that other group. I'm praying this morning that God will use this message just to help you stop and show love and show grace even when it's hard. As Pastor Mike said, maybe you aren't quite faithful in worshiping the Lord. Do you know that when you're gone, there's a hole? There's something missing? I had lunch this week with a gentleman who's here almost every Sunday, him and his wife, and they talked about how they're, they're not yet in a group, but really the people who sit around them on Sunday, they're kind of like becoming a group. They know when someone's missing. May God help us all to kind of have our area. And we, See, when you move, I forget your name, so you got to sit in the same seat every Sunday. What about belonging? What about serving? Maybe the Lord will lay it upon your heart to jump in to serve. We've got a number of groups, again, in your bulletin. Let me give you one more way. Our Belong Membership Weekend 
It's coming up here in about two weeks. And if you're interested in going deeper at Bible Center, finding out how to connect and love people uh, through belonging, through serving, through worshiping, I encourage you to join us for this weekend. I think you'll be blessed by it. Uh, even at the end of it, if you don't feel like joining, there's no pressure to do so. We would love to talk with you about ways to put this message into practice. Why would we be so passionate about loving others? It's simply this, our big idea. Because God calls people in the church to care for people in the church. May the Lord help us to do that like never before. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for a church that is so loving and that embodies the family value. But Lord, as we move forward, I pray that you will take us to the next level. Help us not only to love you, but to love others. To come on Sundays looking for ways to encourage and pray with and be there for other people. And God, I'm asking that you would help us to be a people that our hearts are knit not around our uniqueness, but around the gospel. There would be unity in the midst of diversity because of the gospel. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I recognize this morning that there may be some and you come into this service in need of care, maybe in need of prayer. We have a prayer room for you over on your right, my left. The walls are going to, the doors are going to open in a moment. If you need special prayer, there'll be someone there, some men and women to pray for you. We would love to take just a minute and help pray with you about the hurts on your heart. God, I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would apply this message in all of our lives. Help us to love you more, love each other more, and love our neighbors more. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.